morning. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2 with me. We're going to read a few verses and then we will pray. Acts chapter 2, we're going to read verses 42 through 47. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. Thank you that it is living and active. And uh, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word, open our hearts and our ears, and uh, let the word that you have for us um, take effect this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm back up here in front of these lights. At the end of last year, I shared from this passage, and I gave three exhortations to the church, that like the church that we just read about here, we need to be a church that is, one, devoted to each other, the fellowship and the breaking of the bread, two, devoted to the worship of God, the word and prayer, and three, devoted to reaching the lost. It says that uh, the Lord is adding daily the number of those being saved. So people were being saved. This morning I want to revisit this passage and continue to pull some things out of it along with a few other scriptures. Um, the first thing I want to look at this morning is the cost of being devoted to these things. Then I want to share with you three reasons I think we see in scripture, three things that fuel us and a reason why this cost is worth it. And then I want to share some exhortations for us as a church from this passage. So first, this cost. In this passage right here that we just read, we see several costs if you're going to enact this. Um, the first, I would say, is time. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. All of those things are at least somewhat time-intensive. If you're going to engage and you're really going to be devoted, it's going to cost you time. Eating meals with people takes time, especially in the context of the biblical command of hospitality. If you're going to be hospitable and you're going to have people into your home and you're going to share a meal together, it's going to take a lot of time and effort. If you've done that recently, you know it takes time and effort. Getting into the Word, whether you're being taught or you're listening to preaching or you're opening up the Bible yourself, that takes time. It is time intensive. Prayer, getting into real times, times of prayer, it takes time. Um, it takes time to come together as a body and pray. If you're going to meet with the church to pray, you're going to have to set aside time from your schedule, and that's a cost. Fellowship. We talked about um, a couple months ago the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship, partnership, communion, joint participation, intimacy. If you're going to have intimacy with people, and you're going to participate together with them and partner with them. That takes time. And it's not just devoted to being friends. They were devoted to each other's lives and to the furthering of the church 
that God was establishing. They were participating and partnering together for the gospel. They recognized that they belonged together, and to really belong together takes time. So time is one of the costs that we see here to really be devoted like we've been called to be devoted. Some other things. Um, Money, okay? They were selling their possessions and goods. I'm not giving a sermon on giving today, but belonging and worshiping and being a disciple will cost us our finances. Um, Another thing, not directly stated, but I believe another cost to belonging and coming together is personal preference. Okay, personal preference. These people didn't all gather together because they all were Cardinals fans. Okay? Um, they didn't gather together because they loved the same type of music. They didn't gather together because they loved the same food or because they were all really good volleyball players or because they all loved reading books or because they were all the same age. They gathered together because of Jesus, because of a love for Jesus. I am sure there's a lot of other differences and preferences and interests that they had. They gathered together because of a love for Jesus. In the church today, it's a little bit different, but we all have different preferences in music, different preferences in lighting, in time to meet. We might want a church with people our own age, with people that have the same interests as us, um, with people that we would like a lot, even if we weren't in church with them. But that's not the church. Okay, that's not the church we see here. Um, the church gathered because they had Jesus in common. So that's not what we see in Acts 2, people choosing because of preferences. We see them choosing because of Jesus. Um, the cost in coming together and belonging to Jesus and to each other ultimately is everything. Ultimately, that's the cost of coming together. Jesus said to his disciples, turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to flip to a couple of different scriptures today. In verse 24, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. If you continue reading in the book of Acts, you see what it really cost the disciples to follow Jesus and to belong together. And it cost them everything, their whole life. They were not given a cushy life with luxury and riches and power. When I hear people talk about God wanting you to be healthy and wealthy and have everything you want, I just I don't know how you can read the same Bible that I am because that's not in there. The disciples were thrown in prison. They were beaten. Many of them were killed for their faith in Jesus. In particular... Paul suffered a lot. Um, Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. I want us to look at a little bit of Paul's sufferings together. I'm reading from the 1984 NIV, by the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start um, halfway through verse 23. This is Paul talking about his sufferings. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. 
I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. He is in danger all the time. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? So Paul's life was not cushy or filled with luxury. Why did Paul put up with this? Okay, why? Why did Paul put up with this? Why did the disciples put up with this? Why did the church we see in Acts chapter 2 continue following Jesus? Why did they continue in their devotion to each other, to God, and to making disciples in the face of it costing everything? First, I want to say I agree with Pastor Braden when he spoke at the conference. He spoke from this passage, almost made me turn away from it. I was a little intimidated um, because he was great. But I agree with him, this comes only from the Lord. It comes from the Holy Spirit coming in and regenerating us. But I also believe that Scripture gives us plenty of reasons that the cost associated with these things is worth it. Scripture gives us fuel, you could say, to keep running the race. And I want to submit three of those to you this morning. There are plenty more, but I want to submit three. Um, First turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 7. It says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. This is Paul again. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says he counts everything as lost, as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. He gladly gives up everything as if it isn't even a cost, because knowing Jesus is so good. Church, if we are to be the church that we are called to be, we must remember that Jesus is better. We must remember Jesus is better. He is better than anything else in the world. And if you're in here this morning and you don't know Jesus, believe me and continue listening. Jesus is better. He's better. He's more fulfilling than money. He's more loving than anyone else you're ever going to meet in the world. Jesus is more compassionate than the most compassionate person you know. Think about right now, who's the most compassionate person I know? Jesus is way more compassionate than that. He's more satisfying than sex, than drugs, than alcohol, porn, or anything else you will find in this world. Jesus is more satisfying. Jesus is better. Knowing Jesus is so much better than anything else that Paul endured all of those things that we read about, And he gave up all the things he used to have, which was a lot, and he was happy to do it. He was happy to do it. If you read through your Bible, there's many more reasons you'll find why Jesus is better than anything or anyone else. But one of those reasons 
It's just the great love that Jesus has for us. And it leads into the second fuel, I would say, which is Jesus, who was God in the flesh, came to earth to save sinners. He came to earth to save you and me. Jesus came to save us. We have all sinned. We've all broken God's laws. We've all done evil. And because God is good, and because God is just, that sin has to be punished. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that death that's talked about is not simply a reference to a physical death, but eternity in hell. But God showed his great love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus sent his, God sent his son, Jesus, and Jesus came and lived a life without sin, and he paid the penalty for our sin. He was hung on a cross, as we, we sang about today, to take the punishment for our sins. Jesus was our sacrifice. He was the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. That is the great love that Jesus has for you and me, that he would come and suffer and die for you. But he didn't stop there. Jesus defeated the power of sin and death, and he rose up from the grave. He came back to life, and that gift of eternal life is available to everyone here. Turn to Romans chapter 10 real quick. This is one of my favorite, favorite passages. I know Mike said we're not supposed to have favorites. Um, I guess I need to work on that. Um, Romans chapter 10, in verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, no difference between anyone. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are here this morning and you haven't called on the name of Jesus, if you haven't confessed that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, I encourage you to do so. Talk to me, talk to someone else. We would love to talk to you about it. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And church, do you believe that Jesus is better? I mean, do we really believe Jesus is better? Do, Jesus gave himself for you, Ryan. He gave himself for you. We sang about this just a little bit ago, and we took communion remembering that. We love him because he first loved us. And what a reason that is to worship him and give him our all and endure all things. That cost isn't really that much in light of what Jesus has done. And that eternal life that's offered, that's the third thing, something that we need to remember as believers that is fuel for us, that it's easy to go about our day and not think about. But church, we are headed to heaven, okay? We are headed to heaven. This world in its current form is not our home. We're just passing through. One of my, again, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11. Turn there real quick. Hebrews 11. I have a lot of favorites. But when I was a Bible quizzer, I memorized Hebrews 11. And so it's, it really is one of my favorites. In Hebrews 11, verse 13, it says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, 
They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Our citizenship does not belong to America. It does not belong anywhere on this earth. In Philippians chapter 3, shortly after where we had just read earlier, Paul's talking about those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says, their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I can't wait for that day. Brothers and sisters, heaven is our home. As Pastor Bond has been saying, we belong to Jesus. We are citizens of heaven, and Jesus is coming back, and he will transform us. I cannot wait for that day. And Paul could hardly wait for heaven. He said in earlier in Philippians that he desired to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But he knew that it was necessary for him to remain so as to do the work that God had put him here to do. But he couldn't wait to go to heaven. Do you long for heaven like that? We should. We should. Look forward to heaven and let it drive you to love Jesus and do what he has put you here to do. And before we're done talking about heaven, we need to read from Revelation chapter 21. You get a little more of a picture of what it is we're looking forward to. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Thus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What a beautiful thing to look forward to. Church, this is your future. This is your future. For some of us, it maybe seems a little far away, and for some of us, maybe a little bit closer. I don't know what the Lord has planned, but some of you may beat me there, and I might beat some of you there, but one day, all of us who have trusted in Christ will be there together, and it's going to be a glorious thing. It's going to be a glorious thing. And look what we're saved from. If you read verse 8, the very next verse, it says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, 
Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We are saved from that and we're given heaven. Praise God. That should fuel us forward. So this morning, I've shared a little bit about cost. I've shared a little bit of some fuel for us to say, you know what? The cost doesn't matter because Jesus is better than anything else. He loved us. He died for us. And he offers us eternal life, heaven. Okay, that's fuel. Now I want to move towards my conclusion and offer an exhortation for our church. There were many great words shared at the conference, not last weekend, but two weekends ago, since the snow once again um, decided to fall on Sunday morning. But Steve Sanders shared two weeks ago a great exhortation to the body on belonging to the church and making this your church, taking ownership in your church. And I want to encourage you to personalize those exhortations. Personalize that scripture. And when I say personalize, I don't mean make scripture all about you because scripture isn't about you. Um, Don't make all the messages about you. I mean, take it and apply it to your life. Take it and apply it to yourself. What does it mean for you, Mike, as an individual that makes up a part of the church body? Are you devoted to the teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayer? Are you devoted to reaching the lost and making disciples? And as you do that, you need to realize, if I'm going to belong, if I'm going to fulfill the call that God has placed on me, it's going to cost me my time. And when I say me, I don't mean me. I mean you. Me as well. (laughs) It's going to cost your time. It's going to cost your finances, your personal preferences. It's going to cost you your comfort. It's ultimately going to cost you everything. But also realize you get to know Jesus. So you have to ask yourself, do you believe that knowing him is better than anything? Jesus died for you. He paid for your sins and you get to go to heaven. So I want to share some practical ways that I think as a church we should personalize this. And the first is just make being here with the church a priority. If you are devoted to everyone else here, if you are devoted to the teaching, you'll be here. It's it's pretty simple, but hard to put into practice sometimes. Limit your trips out of town. Make sure you don't stay up so late that you miss coming to service or you come to service late. Structure your life and make decisions in such a way that puts you here as much as you can be here. Structure your life and your decisions in a way that shows you're really devoted. Um, Give. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that one of the biggest struggles for the church in America is money. And when I say struggle, I mean money has a hold on us. We are by far the wealthiest people in the world and the wealthiest believers in the world. And yes, it costs us to give, We feel it any time we give, but not in the way that it does other believers around the world. That's a different thing. I want to encourage you to give in a way that reflects the devotion that we are called to. Put your money where your mouth is. God is our provider, not your boss, not your job. God is our provider. He's the one who has provided us all that we have. Can we not trust him to take care of us and give like he's called us to give? We can. 
I wasn't originally planning on going here, but I just want to read some scripture and have the Bible talk about giving instead of me. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6. And if you're writing down and you want to read it later, you can write verses 6 through 15 of chapter 9. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I, I've heard a lot of people, and I'm not saying anyone in, in this church, I'm just saying I've heard people say, God loves a cheerful giver. If I'm not happy about giving, I shouldn't give. <laughs> need to read the whole context of this, this passage here, okay? Um, and God, in verse 8, is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of your service, by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Praise God. Is his word true? Do you trust him? my encouragement is to give like you do. Give in a way that shows your trust in God. Get involved in the ministry of the church. Help out in some way. This is the real part of fellowship. Okay, there's breaking of bread together. That's good. But real fellowship is also partnering together with the church for the gospel. That word, the koinonia that's translated, it speaks of that partnership. Partner together here with your brothers and your sisters, and serve them and serve alongside them. Help make things operate well. We're a body. Every, every member of the body has to do its part for us to function well. So serve in ministry at the church. Um, be intentional to make times of prayer and worship. Ask yourself, how often have I been around when there's a chance to really pray or worship together? And when those opportunities present themselves, I encourage you to seize them, to take them, take those opportunities. Think life groups where we get to pray and discuss the word together. Upper room where we come together to pray. The women's ministry gets to fellowship and pray together. Take those opportunities when they're there to come together and pray as a church. The breaking of uh, bread and the fellowship, I just want to encourage the church to eat together. All right, eat together. Eat with your brothers and sisters. Share, share meals together. And don't wait for someone to come up to you, okay? Don't wait for someone to come up to you. Go up to someone else in the church. Ask them to join you for a meal. Go over after service is over. Strike up a conversation. Get to know them. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had people tell me, no one comes up to me after this or after that. And I ask them, 
have you gone up and, and done what you're wanting people to do? Usually the answer is no. Okay, don't wait for someone else to do what God is calling you to do. Okay, start doing what God has called you to do, and maybe you'll encourage your brothers and sisters to start doing the same thing as well. Start with yourself. And when we're talking about eating together, and we're talking about breaking of bread, and we're talking about fellowship, I think there's, there's some more things that are happening in this, this passage in Acts 2. Um, turn to Matthew 28. Everyone in the church should have this memorized by now, but we're going to read it. Matthew chapter 28, in verse 18, says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we are told to make disciples of all nations, and sometime in the future, I'm going to talk about that all nations part. But the making disciples part, this is a theme throughout all of Scripture. The making of disciples is something that we are all called to do. It's not for some people, it's for all of us. And I believe that in Acts chapter 2, something that is getting fulfilled there is discipleship. Um, the believers being devoted and leading new believers in the same thing. People walking alongside them and leading them towards Jesus. Jesus was with his disciples a lot. They learned from what he said and from what he did. Discipleship requires intentional relationship. And that is not to downplay teaching. I think that being under, being under preaching and teaching is one of the primary means by which someone is discipled, but it is not the only means by which someone is discipled. In verse 47, it says, The Lord added daily to those who were being saved. As the church kept growing and growing in Acts, it means there were more and more new believers. Our call is not just to share the gospel with those who haven't heard it, but to make disciples. We have to share the gospel first, but we don't stop there. We make disciples. These new believers needed to grow in their faith. And I believe they were being discipled by other believers as they sat under teaching, engaged in partnership, broke bread, and prayed together. Through the fulfillment of what we see, the church being devoted here, disciples are being made. Now, there are plenty of people in your life that need the gospel. There are people in this church, and will be more people, I believe, that need to be discipled. And I don't mean that they need to enter a program that spits them out as like a more mature believer, Okay? Um, and that's not to downplay programs at all. But they need to be brought along in their faith. Look for these opportunities, church, and when you see it, one, seize it. Okay, you see an opportunity for discipleship, seize it. Now, if you have a relationship with someone, they're not saved, you have a chance to share the gospel, and let's say God saves them. Hallelujah. Amen? Share the gospel, God saves them. I hope your ministry to them does not stop there. Okay? That person now needs to be discipled, and you have a relationship with them. So you are most likely going to be a part of that process in one way or the other. Now, obviously, there are things that could hinder that. Maybe you shared the gospel with someone. 
that you know, and they live states away. Okay, well, help them figure out a church where they can get plugged in over there. But if it's someone, you have a relationship, they're in your life, you share the gospel, you lead them to Jesus, then your ministry isn't done. Don't say, okay, cool, here's a list of churches, go find one. These are all, all, all good churches to go check out. Bring them into your life. Bring them here. Not saying that it's bad for people to go to other churches, but you have that connection. Disciple them, bring them into your life. We're called to make disciples, and though it is costly and probably very time-consuming, I know it's very time-consuming, we need to do it. So don't look around for a church, say, well, this person is a, a I just touched my mic, this person is a, a young single, I'm going to look for a church that has a, a really good young singles group. Don't look for a church that has the best youth group or the softball team because they like softball or the volleyball team because they like volleyball. You don't want to win people to people their age. You don't want to win people to a softball team in a church. You want to win them to Christ. You want to win them to Christ. And you can't effectively disciple someone if you're sending them off somewhere else. Okay? So if you're here and you belong here, bring them in here. And I promise I'm getting close to wrapping up. Um, but if we, as a body, want to grow, if we as a body want to see people come to Jesus Christ, if we want to see people discipled and growing in their faith, we have to do the work. We have to do the work. You have to do it. Steve has to do the work. Lee has to do the work. Jake has to do the work. Okay? You need to be sharing the gospel. You need to be inviting people to church. You need to be meeting and welcoming the guests that come into the church. You need to be bringing people along from attenders to members who belong to the church. And when I say you, I also mean me. I mean all of us. Each one playing their own part, using the gifts that God has given. And as I was preparing for today, I kept coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it is not directly addressing what we're talking about, but I want to read a couple of verses here. This is important for us to remember. In verse 5 of, of chapter 3, it says, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. What is beautiful and encouraging to me here is that God is the one who makes things grow. He gives us gifts. He calls us to do the work, but he is the one that causes things to grow. We can do the work that he has called us to do and trust him to bring the fruit out of it. That's a beautiful thing. It doesn't depend on me. God makes it grow. So as a final encouragement, don't be the believer who says, well, giving is that person's gift, so serving's my gift, I'll let them give, so you don't give. Don't say, discipling is that person's gift, I'll focus on being here and worship every week, and then don't disciple. Don't say, prayer is that person's gift, I'll focus on evangelism, and then you never pray with your church. No, don't 
don't make excuses. When you're hearing a call to devotion and a call to do to belong to the church, don't make excuses. A lot of we're really good at that as people. We're good at making excuses. Don't make excuses. You might be more gifted in other areas and engage in those areas where God has gifted you. But we're all called to belong. We're all called to pray. We're all called to the word. There are things that all of us are called to. We're all called to disciple. Don't make excuses, church. You belong to Christ. You belong to his church. You belong to this church. This work is going to cost us. It'll be hard. But how can we not do it? How can we not do it? Jesus laid down his life for us. He paid for our sins. The love he has lavished on us is great. We are his children. And knowing Jesus is so much better, I just, I don't know how we can't do it. We have to do it. And when things get hard, and this week, as you face your challenges and your troubles and stuff at work and whatever it is in your life that is in front of you, I want to encourage you to look forward to heaven. Okay, look forward to heaven. Let's pray. Father, you are far above us and you are worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. And there is no one like you. And we thank you and we praise you for your great loving kindness to us, your children. The love that you have for us is unrivaled. And we just thank you. And Jesus, we thank you for being obedient even unto death, death on a cross. Thank you for taking the punishment we deserved and paying for our sins. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that knowing you is better than anything else, Jesus. We pray right now that if there's anyone here that does not know you, if there's anyone here who has not put their trust in you, Jesus, please open their hearts to the gospel and lead them in this moment to salvation. We ask that they would turn in repentance from their sin and put their trust in you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work that you do in us. Thank you that you reside within us and that you empower us to do what we have read today in Scripture. Make us a bold people. Make us a sacrificial people, a gospel-focused people. God, give us strength to do the Father's will and remind us that Jesus is better. Remind us that we have been saved from our sins and help us to look forward to heaven. And God, we ask you now that you would help this church, your church, help us to be the church you want us to be. Help us to be devoted to your word, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer, to evangelism, to discipleship. Help us to be devoted to each other. And God, most of all, devoted to you. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.